gospel accounts this week of the call of Jesus' disciples, that's very frankly what they did. They abandoned it all for the sake of the call. Not for any other reason at all. Just the fact that Jesus called. I'm constantly amazed when I read the call of Matthew, who was Levi, the tax collector, sitting at his table with all of his money and receipts and business dealings. And Jesus walks by his table and says, follow me. And Levi gets up and follows after him, leaves all the money, leaves the tax collecting, leaves the job, leaves it all, just follows Jesus. That's a constant source of amazement to me, how he could give all that up. He became Matthew and uh, gives us that gospel. I want to share with you this morning out of John's gospel, John chapter 5. So if you have a normally formatted Bible, it's in its normal place. If you have uh, our daily Bible with you this morning, it's October 25th. John chapter 5. We live today in a society, in a culture, that largely um, relegates Christianity to that which is irrelevant. And there's many people who profess to be Christians who basically live irrelevant lives in terms of their faith, in terms of not knowing or being able to exhibit uh, God's power. It's almost as if Yes, God is alive and God is real and he is powerful and he did work in a, in a powerful way at a certain period of time in history, but he doesn't work that way anymore. And uh, now we're just kind of left to just hope. Um, uh, and by that, mean, by that I mean a weak sort of desire that maybe somehow God could help me in the midst of my difficult life. And as a result, the world really looks at Christianity as being irrelevant, insignificant. The world looks at us as, well, it's nice that you've found something that works for you, a belief system, but it's significantly no different than any other belief system. No different than being a Buddhist, a follower of Islam, Hindu, follower of the New Age movement in which, you know, we believe in the all-nothingness and everything kind of flows together. Christianity is no different in most people's minds today. And in lots of professing Christians' minds, they wonder if Christianity is any different. They're not too sure. I talk to people all the time who have all sorts of doubts and questions about their faith and about is Jesus really real, and how can I know his power? So I want to talk to you this morning out of John chapter 5, the first 15 verses, and I want to pose this question. What difference does Jesus really make? What difference does Jesus really make? If you read... The first few verses of this section, we're told that Jesus, he's up in Jerusalem at one of the feasts. 
We're not told which one. And he's, whenever he goes to Jerusalem, he loves to spend time in the temple because that's where the people are and that's where they're constantly cycling through and he has an opportunity to teach, gain visibility. So he spends lots of time at the temple. But we're told that there's a, uh, a place called uh, the Pool of uh, Bethesda or Bethsaida. And it's surrounded by five covered colonnades. So there's this large porch area, apparently, around this particular pool. And around this pool lay a great number of disabled people, blind people, lame people, and paralyzed people. The question they laid around this pool was because there was a legend that with the water, when the waters were stirred, when the waters were moved or disturbed, that the legend was that an angel was disturbing the water and whoever could get into that water first could be healed if he had some physical malady. So there was a, a great grouping of disabled people who laid around that pool anxiously waiting for the waters to be stirred. Now, of course, it's a legend. And as ancient peoples are wont to do, and, and not even so much ancient peoples, but even modern peoples, there's lots of Christian legends Lots of Christian folklore, things that float around through the church and people pick up and they never really check out and they have no biblical basis. But most scholars, Bible scholars and archaeologists believe that the waters got disturbed because there was a stream that ran underneath and a spring that ran underneath this pool that fed the pool and every so often the water would bubble up and disturb the water. And it was a mystery to those ancient people and, uh, and so they would think that somehow there were some miraculous curative powers there. So Jesus goes to this pool. Apparently he's alone because there's no mention of his disciples being with him. Uh, he leaves them probably at the temple area or they're gone shopping or doing something. And uh, he goes over to this pool area. And he begins to look around. Probably talks to a few people, asks some questions, surveys the, uh, the scene. And he discovers there's one guy there who is probably the most impossible, in the most impossible situation. We're told, if you read the passage, that one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition a long time. So Jesus is apparently inquiring about this one, that one. And then he sees one man who is apparently has no one attending to him. Maybe they're all by himself. Because later on he says to Jesus, I have no one to put me in the water. I'm friendless. He inquires and finds out that this guy's been an invalid for probably, well, some 38 years, and who knows how long he's been laying around the pool, waiting. And Jesus is going to make a difference in his life. At least Jesus is going to offer to make a difference in his life. The question for you and I is, what difference does Jesus really make in our life? and through our life. I would submit to you that Jesus makes all the difference. 
Jesus makes all the difference. Why does Jesus make all the difference? Who is Jesus that he should make all the difference? Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. If you read Paul's letter to the Colossian church, Paul writes, testifying to the supremacy of Christ, that it was through Christ that everything that is came into being. Jesus was the agent of creation. And God himself, in the person of Jesus, comes down upon this earth. The God who created it all, the only one who can make all the difference, comes down and visits us. He sees this man, 38 years paralyzed, no friends to help him, in an impossible situation, in effect. Humanly speaking, this guy's in an impossible situation. With Jesus, there is always hope. With Jesus, there is always hope. And when I use that word hope, I don't mean the weak kind of desire. Well, I hoped something would happen. I mean that word hope in the sense that there's always confidence. With Jesus, there's always confidence. There's always hope. And this is what people need. What the world needs now is Jesus. And Jesus is offering on a continuing basis by his grace, help, strengthening, healing. For this man, in this condition, everybody, possibly even himself, they've closed the book on him. It's all over. He is tantamount to worth nothing but being thrown away. In our culture today, he would be relegated to uh, a re retirement home, a convalescent hospital, a place where uh, he would essentially just vegetate. Humanly speaking, he's not worth much. He's in an impossible situation. But the exciting thing is, with Jesus, the book is never closed. I mean, there's always hope until you're what? Dead. And then you don't care anymore. You're in glory. And that's exciting to me because I believe in praying and continuing to pray, continuing to seek the Lord, continuing to hunger after him while there's a breath in my body and never give up because there's always hope. There's always hope with him. He never closes the book on us. Though you and I may be in some paralysis, even for 38 years, there's still hope. There's still hope. Jesus seeks out possibly, in this man, the worst situation around that pool. He is a friend to the friendless. He is help to the helpless. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 that we were, when we were in our worst possible condition spiritually, dead to God, enemies, sinners, that Christ died for us. When we were, in effect, 
helpless and we couldn't do anything for ourselves. No amount of good works, no amount of giving money, no amount of being a nice person, no amount of being religious could help us. We were, in effect, dead to God spiritually. And we were in that condition. Christ died for us when we were at our very worst. And so this man is a, is a picture of our condition. Is the gospel theory only? No, I love what Paul writes again in Romans in chapter 1 and verse 16. He says the gospel is the power of God. The good news of Jesus is the power of God to change lives for those who what? Who believe it. The gospel isn't theoretical only. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not something we just sit around and debate, although many people do that. No, the gospel is power. But the question is, how do we look at it? In reality, each one of us sit down and say, what do I really believe? Do I, bottom line, believe that the gospel is theoretical? Or do I know the reality of the power of God to change? Do I know that power that can give life to the dead? And that can call things into existence that didn't previously exist? Does God want us to know his power? Absolutely. Absolutely. You read through the whole New Testament, you read through the Old Testament, you see over and over and over, God longs for his people to be the recipients of his power, to be the beneficiaries of his power, and to be the vessels of his power. And his grace, and his love, and his mercy. What impossible situation is facing your life? What impossible situation is facing your life? Not only can Jesus make a difference, he wants to make a difference. Not only is he able to, he wants to. Beloved, I would submit to you, we pray, Lord, if, if you want to do this, Lord, if you want to do this, okay. And we, we think... Surely God must want to do something for us. We think that he can do something for us. But there seems to be a lack of connection. There seems to be no real tangible evidence, except sporadically when he seems to do something. And as I look around, I see lots of faces of people who I know, I know some of your life situations, I know some of the things you're facing and dealing with. And many of you are in very, very difficult situations. You have uh, tremendous things in your life that you're contending with. Impossible situations. Humanly speaking, hopeless. You don't see any way out. There doesn't seem to be any change. There doesn't seem to be any difference being made. I had a man come to me last night after the service, and he said, I'm, I'm discouraged. I said, what are you discouraged about? 
And he said, because I, I try to have my quiet time and I try to spend time with God and pray and I don't feel him. And so I, I figure, what's the use? I might as well just give up and quit. He's saying, I'm not getting any reinforcement from God. What do you think I told him? Yeah, go ahead and quit. <laughs> give up. There's no use continuing. Obviously, God doesn't love you. No, you know what I told him to do? Keep on. Keep on. Don't quit. Don't quit. We walk by faith. Don't make decisions based on your emotions. Make decisions based on what the Word of God says. The Word of God says He loves you. Keep on. God's working in your life. He's doing something. He's training you to trust Him even when your feelings are arrayed against you. Of course, He didn't want to hear that. So we prayed for him and anointed him with oil and he had a good cry and hopefully he went out of here encouraged that God was for him. Beloved, not only can Jesus make a difference, he wants to make a difference. Look what he says. He goes up to the man who's been laying there and who's been an invalid for 38 years. He asks him, a very significant question. Do you want to get well? Now you'd think, I mean, if you're, if you're laying around that guy and you're hearing this, now the guy, incidentally, the invalid doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't have a clue. As far as he knows, it's some guy that's just walked into the area and, and says, do you want to get well? And the, and the guy is going to respond, well, you know, I don't have anybody to jump me in the pool, and I'm, I'm, I don't have any friends, I don't have any help, I'm all alone, thinking, well, maybe this guy will pick him up and jump him in the pool. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't have a clue to his identity. He just comes up and he says, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be reconciled? Do you want to be restored? Yes, in theory. In theory or in reality? There's a lot of people who hear the gospel, a lot of people who, who hear and they say, well, yes, in, in theory, I'd like to be healed. But I don't dare believe it. I don't want to risk. I don't want to be let down. And so we're caught in that middle ground where we just, we just say, oh, but, ooh, uh. You know what I'm saying? Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be reconciled? He's the God of restoration. He's the God of healing. He takes broken things and he puts them back together again. The nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. 
describes the fact that all the king's horses and all the king's men, all the resources of humankind cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Only God can. Humpty Dumpty is man. It's a picture of man created perfectly, but man falling. And now man bearing tremendous grief and pain and brokenness. And this man by the pool is just a picture of all the rest of us. We need Jesus. And Jesus makes all the difference. When he says, do you want to be healed? That question is central. That question is all important. That question is radically important. And as important as the question is, everything depends upon our answer. He asks the question. He, in effect, bounces the ball into our court. Everything else from that point on depends upon our answer. And do we answer in theory only, or do we answer with all of our heart, with everything we've got? I am convinced that the very first, the most important essential towards receiving the power of Jesus is to have an intense desire for it. Let me say that again. I believe the first, the foremost, the most significant, essential to receiving the power of Jesus is to have an intense desire for it. Do you want to be made well? Yes! Well, I suppose, theoretically, well, I'm not sure. You see, I think that there'd be a lot more people well, a lot more marriages healed, a lot more forgiveness experienced, a lot less anxiety experienced, a lot less frustration in people's lives. Jesus is there to bring the power. Jesus is there to do the healing. Jesus is there to do the restoration. He says, do you want it? Do you want it? Do you really want to be changed, I think is what he's saying. The guy's been laying there for 38 years. Do you really want to be changed? If in the most inner part of our life we are content to stay as we are, then there can be no change and there will be no change. We'll not know the power of God to change our life. If we're content, if, we're, if we've, if we've kind of settled in, the guy is laying there, he's been laying there for how long on that bed? Actually, you know, it's kind of cool under the shade of the porch here by the pool and somebody must be bringing him some food and he really doesn't have to go out and toil in the sun and work hard and make his way. Actually, we grow kind of comfortable in our disabilities, don't we? We say on one hand, oh, I want a better life. I want strength in my life. I want my marriage restored. I want my relationships healed. I want to know God's forgiveness. I want to be set free. But in effect, 
I don't want to have to exert myself. In reality, you've got to have, to know his power, an intense, intense desire for it. The song that Casey sang, for the sake of the call, I've abandoned all. But just for the sake of the call, just because Jesus called. Do you know what Jesus' real difficulty with us is? His real difficulty with us is this. I mean, we hear his promises. We read these things, we say, oh, this is great. Wow, Jesus healed all these people, and, and, and all these miracles happened, and awesome things. We hear his promises. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do for you. I bless your life protect you, provide for you. And our hearts run to those things. We claim his promise. Oh, do we? I'm convinced that Jesus' most difficult problem with us is this. This is that for many of us, we really don't, we really don't mean what we say. We really don't mean what we say we believe or we say we think. We really don't mean it. We really don't want what we say we want or what we think we want. We often, I think, mistake imagination for reality. We have vivid imaginations. We can imagine ourselves great prayer warriors when in fact we never become a person deeply involved in prayer at all. But we have this vision of ourselves. Oh yes, I pray. Or we imagine ourselves being students of the Bible. Reading, studying. And we build these images in our mind that we, we, in effect, fool ourselves that we do these things. We are this kind of a person. When, in fact, we don't. And very often, we confuse or we mistake our imaginings for the reality. People imagine they're Christians. They imagine being converted when, in fact, they're never converted. You look at, you hear these things, and you hear about Jesus, and you hear about the wonder and the grace and the forgiveness, and it sounds so attractive. Oh, you long for it, and you, especially from a distance. But you get up real close, and you begin to see that it's costly. And it becomes a whole other question at that point. Bottom line, I wonder if we really do want what we say we want. Jesus goes on to tell the man, after he's said to him, do you want to get well? And this, the person says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, now get this. He says to him what? Get up. Get up. 
pick up your bed and walk. Get up. He tells the man to get up. It's as if he says to him, listen, man, bend your will to this thing. At least attempt, get up. And you and I will do this thing together. You'll notice, by the way, there's no mention in this whole passage of faith. The guy does know who Jesus is. He's not going to place his faith in Jesus. He probably has no faith that he's going to get well. In effect, I believe that Jesus is saying to him, bend your will to this thing. Will to face the impossibility. Will to get up. And I'll bring my power to bear if you will cooperate. If you will take a step. In fact, Jesus is commanding the guy to do the impossible, isn't he? He's commanding him to do the absolute impossible. Get up. The power of God does not dispense with our effort. God is always calling us to participate. He's, you have to understand, Jesus looks at this guy as a significant being. He has a part to play. He has a role to play. He counts as you and I as significant beings. And when you count somebody as significant, you give them the credit, you give them the validity, and you expect them to participate, to be actively involved. And Jesus recognizes this, and he gives this man his sense of dignity back. He says, do you want to get well? Get up. Get up. Well, how can I get up? I've been laying here for 38 years. You don't hear anything like that. Somehow, Jesus manages to communicate a challenge to this man that reaches down in the deepest part of his being and strikes something that he responds to. And when he makes the move to get up, he is instantly cured. That's astounding to me. And yet, you know what? I see it happen often enough that when people begin to exert themselves, when they really believe that Jesus will make the difference in their life, and they begin to exert themselves, when they really begin to want, and they bend their will to what Jesus says, I've seen him do tremendous things. I've seen people who struggle with homosexuality for years delivered, delivered because they've exerted their will in the direction of what Jesus wanted to do to heal them and I've seen Jesus set people free. I've seen people in this church set free from drugs and alcohol just like that. I've seen marriages turn around just like that. Because people have set their will to say, yes! And they wanted, they had such an intense desire to know God's power, his freeing power in their life, they set their will, and God's power met them at that point. 
in almost instantaneous transformations. You say, this can't be so. This is, this is a statistical anomaly. This can't be real. Any minute, it's going to fall apart. And it just goes on and on and on, and people are just keep growing and maturing. It's exciting to me. Power of God. He said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You told us a few weeks ago when we looked at Job that God means for us to, to come to a place where we are utterly disillusioned with ourselves when we are helpless. That's right. That's true. You've got to know your helplessness. You can't be any, can't be any delusions about what you can do. You've got to know that you are utterly helpless. You've got to be broken. But... In a very real sense, it is also true that miracles happen when our will and God's power collide, when they come together and something awesome happens. When our will and God's power cooperate, miracles happen. Miracles happen. When we have the intensity of desire, when we have the determination to make the effort. How easy it is to give up. How easy it is to just sit back and say, oh, it's impossible. There's no hope. Oh, I know Jesus is there, but maybe he'll just comfort my heart. Maybe he'll just give me his peace and kind of just let me struggle through with a minimum amount of discomfort. And we're unwilling to make the effort. We're unwilling to exhibit an intense desire to know his power. We have the intensity of desire. We have the intensity of the determination to make the effort, hopeless though it may seem, hopeless though it may seem, I am utterly convinced that the power of Christ then gets its opportunity. God's power gets its opportunity when we make the decision to make the effort. And with him we can conquer what for long may have conquered us. Isn't that exciting? God, I want this. I want it so bad I can taste it. And see, it's only he who can read our hearts, isn't it? Sure. Now when Jesus healed this man, he says, get up, pick up your mat, walk at once. The man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now, this was on the Sabbath, by the way. Big trouble. Big time. Jesus had a habit of doing these things on the Sabbath in Jerusalem. Ticked off the religious leadership. This is a violation of the fourth commandment. It requires capital punishment. This man should be killed now because he's picked up his bed and he's carrying a burden on the Sabbath. And the religious leadership, they encounter him as he's walking out of the area and they say, it's the Sabbath, you're carrying a burden. Now, do you think they might have known who he was or had some visibility of him? I think possibly that's true. You would think they'd say, rather than castigating him for carrying a burden on the Sabbath, they'd say, Share the testimony in the temple. Come and tell us what happened to you. 
they nail him for carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Jesus, the price that he paid to bring this man's health back was significant. This particular event is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It culminates a series of events in which Jesus is, is growing in, in increasing disfavor with the leadership, the religious leadership. And with this particular event, on this healing, on the Sabbath, when they find out who it is that healed him at the end of the, end of the passage there, the guy discovers it was Jesus because Jesus encounters him in the temple. And by the way, he says to him, uh, your 38 years of paralysis was due to sin and avoid sin, avoid sinning anymore because if you don't, worse thing could happen to you. So it wasn't like this was a necessarily a congenital problem. Most of our problems are a result of our own foolishness, our own sinfulness. Jesus even wants us to heal us of that. But it's possible, apparently, to lose your healing if you go back into sin. Isn't that interesting? But what happens is that now the, 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 the pressure really is going to heat up against Jesus because it's with this event that the course of his life, the road he's traveling, takes a sharp turn and head straight for Calvary. The price he pays to reach out and heal this man, he knows full well what to expect, but the price he pays is tremendous. It is significant. By human standards, judging by human standards, this man was not worth it. He was a throwaway in this society by human standards, but not by God's standards. God will go to great lengths. He will risk whatever it takes to reach out and to save and to heal and to restore and to bless whoever really wants it. The cost is great. The cost is great for us. What cost did he pay to get us? He died for us. He died for every single human being. He paid the price for every single human being. And he says, will you be healed? Will you be forgiven? Will you be saved? Or are you content to remain in the condition that you're in? What do you want? Do you dare believe that possibly Jesus can make a significant difference in your life? and in the lives of the people around you? The incredible thing, the incredible thing, that having given us the chance and knowing how futile and undependable we can be, Jesus, even after having given us a chance, doesn't give up on us. He just keeps offering the chance. He keeps offering the opportunity. For too many of us, for too many of us, we are poor advertisements for the power of Jesus. We are poor advertisements for the power of God and end up rather being stumbling blocks to others 
rather than being a help to them. Do you know that we're to live our lives as open books? We're to live our lives as open books, just like epistles, just like the Bible. You can open it anytime and you can read it. Nothing is hidden. We're to be known, we're to be read by all men. Why? So that they can know, they can see, they can experience the power and the love of Christ in our lives and through our lives. The question is, do people see this hope in us? Or do people look at our lives listening to some glib profession of faith, some idle chatter that's in fact being backed up by very ordinary and sometimes even shabby character that eventually demeans and lowers their conception of what it means to be a Christian. Are we, by how we live our life, by how we exhibit our faith and trust, are we exhibiting to other people that in effect Christianity is irrelevant? And I would submit to you for the vast majority of the church today, yes, that's true. People say, are you one of those born-agains? Are you one of those pain-in-the-neck born-agains? It's all mouth. See, that's basically the conception that the world has of us. The world does not have the conception. They don't run to us and they say, oh, are you a Christian? Are you one of those people that, that has power and ability? I mean, you can... Are you one of those, are you in our neighborhood that you can, my friend is sick, could you come? This marriage is in need, can you come and help? Do they run to us with, with expectation? Do they run to us and say, oh, you're one of those born agains, oh. Do they? No. They jeer at us and they mock us. And most of us hide. Most of us are ashamed and afraid to say, I'm born again. You know why? Because we don't know the power of God. We don't know the power of God. We talk a good story. But most of our talk ends up being gossip, backbiting, and criticism. We don't know the power of God because we, in fact, don't intently, intensely desire it. And we're not willing to give up our own comfort, our own selfishness, our rights. Oh, my rights. What about my rights? People will trample all over me. No, they'll trample all over everything to get to you. Because they see in your life, they read you like an open book. They see power. They see hope. They see that Jesus has made a difference in your life. And if he's made a difference in your life, then maybe he can make a difference in their life. Maybe. But you know what, beloved? It all depends on how they read our life. 
It all depends on what they read in our life. Is Jesus real? We would all say, yes, amen, hallelujah. He's real in heaven. Is he real here? Is he real here? When was the last time you led someone to Jesus? Because they saw in you the power of God evident. When was the last time you reached out to somebody and you ministered to him? You didn't know, have a clue as to what you were doing, but you reached out and you touched him and you ministered to him and something happened to him. They changed. We are the body of Christ. Jesus is not disembodied. He has said, I've gone away, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He'll live in you. The Spirit of Christ is in us. And God means, Jesus means, for us to be the vessels, the, the avenue through which he moves in this world. But if we don't believe it, it's got to move beyond the theoretical to us. Jesus can make all the difference. Jesus can make all the difference. And even for people who are in impossible situations, you've been in this situation for 38 years, it's hopeless, everybody else has given up, you're on the verge of giving up. And he says, do you really want to be well? You say, yes! Yes! With every fiber of my being. He says, then what? Get up. Uh, <laughs> I was hoping you'd make me all well before you asked me to get up. Are you with me? Yes. Are you hearing me? Amen. This world desperately needs Jesus. And he's depending on us. He said, trust me. Trust me. Let me work in you and through you. Be willing to pay whatever price you have to pay to give up whatever you have to give up. Risk. Risk. Father, help us. Help us, oh God, I pray. Help us be on fire for you. Help us, Lord, to move out of our complacency, out of our comfort zones, out of our categories, our easy categories, Lord. I am convinced, Lord, that every one of us longs to know your power. But Lord, correct our confusion, correct our perceptions and our misperceptions. 
Lord, that we must get up. We must participate with you. We must make the effort, no matter how impossible it may look. You have not closed the book on any of us. We're still here. We're still alive. There's still hope. The curtain has not yet come down. Lord, I pray that you would stir us up by your Spirit. Give us a fresh vision of your plan and your purpose, your desire for our life. That we indeed would know your power. That you would make all the difference.